0: Welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. We are still talking about the Dutch Revolt, the 80 Years' War, and if you haven't listened to the previous episodes on it, you might want to go do that now. Last time, the Dutch tried yet another foreign ruler, this time an English one, and that worked out about as well as the others. This time, Maurice of Nassau, the second son of William the Silent, comes into his own as a Dutch leader, and the United Provinces begin to assert the independence that they declared. If you're enjoying the series, please go rate the podcast on iTunes. Maps and images, as always, can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. You can send any comments or questions to me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com. Or on Twitter at the almost forgot. This is the Dutch Revolt, Part 7, Maurice of Nassau, and this is the almost forgotten. Last episode, Philip II's forces under Alexander Farnese of Parma were putting the Dutch back on their heels, but the Duke never had the money to bring together a force strong enough to really crush them. Meanwhile, King Philip spent his empire's money on the Spanish Armada and an invasion of England, rather than more attacks on the Low Countries. Not that it was all smooth sailing for the Dutch, who brought the Earl of Leicester and the English in, only to once again see firsthand. That if they wanted to do revolution right, they were probably going to have to do it themselves. Alexander was angry. Unlike his uncles Philip and Don John, he was not interested in an invasion of England. He wanted to regain the Low Countries for the Habsburgs, and although many of his men had died of disease waiting for the Armada, he had gathered an army with nothing to do now but turn their attention to the Netherlands. In the fall of 1588, Alexander set out for Bergen-Op-Zoom, a city in northern Brabant. It was a commercial center that sat on the Scheldt estuary, was heavily fortified, and was almost the only remaining Brabantine city in Dutch hands. The forces defending the city were mostly English and commanded by that Welshman Thomas Morgan. English soldiers, despite the change in politics, were still actively helping defend against the Spanish. By the time the Duke of Parma arrived, the dikes in the area had been smashed, and much of the surrounding land was at least partially submerged. After a few weeks of siege, a couple of Englishmen showed up in Alexander's camp. They were Catholics who were old pals of those English commanders that had surrendered Deventer and Zutphen, and they knew of a secret entrance to the city. The Spanish weren't fools, and so they didn't trust them. So they bound the two men's hands as a precaution before following them with a force of a hundred men at night through chest-high water to the city's north gate, which had been surreptitiously opened for them. Another thousand soldiers followed them. After the lead force went through, the portcullis rope was cut, slamming the gate down behind the soldiers leading the group. It was a trap, and those stuck inside were immediately killed. The Spanish soldiers outside the gate attacked as well, but were turned back. In the end, a thousand attackers were killed. The next day, Maurice arrived with a relief force to add to the garrison, which sallied out and pushed the Spanish back from their entrenchments. As winter approached after these two defeats, Alexander realized, despite his 20, now something less than 19,000 soldiers, I guess, he was not in a position of strength. He abandoned the siege in November taking up winter quarters in Brussels. By 1589 with the failure of the armada and without significant cash flowing in Alexander and the Spanish were in a weaker position unable to launch major offensives. They did take the city of Gertrudenberg thanks to a mutiny of unpaid English troops but most actual warfare ground to a halt. One major bit of action occurred at sea though when Elizabeth sent a force of her own, known as the English Armada, to attack Spain. A fleet of 150 ships, mostly armed merchant vessels, some one-third of which were Dutch, was sent to attack Spain. Its purpose was a little different than Philip's goal of conquest. It was meant to foment a revolt in Portugal and cripple the Spanish to the point of ending the war. It was, however, about as successful as the Spanish Armada. They at least were able to attack some Spanish towns and destroy some Spanish supplies, but in the end, they didn't cripple the Spanish fleet or start a revolt in Portugal. A little less than half of the more than 20,000 who set out returned safely. Another important event occurred in 1589 that would help steer the course of the Dutch Revolt. Henry III, King of France, was assassinated by a member of the Catholic League, one of the rival teams in the French Wars of Religion who saw him as too conciliatory towards the Huguenots. His formerly Huguenot cousin, Henry of Navarre, the one who barely escaped his own wedding celebration alive during the St. Bartholomew's Day massacres in Paris, became the new king of France. Henry, of course, was sympathetic to the Huguenots and would eventually consolidate power. But for the moment, there was still a civil war going on there, and Henry was neither secure nor universally recognized. Philip of Spain, always trying to foment civil war in France, now wanted to assist the Catholic League in fighting the latest Henry. So he made Alexander keep a significant amount of his forces near the border. In addition to almost ensuring Alexander wasn't going to be able to attack Zealand and Holland, this also left the other Spanish holdings in the Low Countries not as well defended. The Dutch, plan to take advantage. Maurice of Nassau was solidifying his role as commander of the armed forces, although at only 20, he left the civil authority to the states general as he immersed himself in military studies. He and his cousin William Louis, stadtholder of Friesland and the son of John of Nassau, studied the classics and tried to imagine how ancient Greek and Roman military tactics might help their army deal with the professional armies of the enemy. These two men would help usher in what has been called the military revolution of the era, when the Dutch, as well as the Swedes, created a more modern style of warfare. Late in the year, the stadtholder of Overijssel, Gelders, and Utrecht was killed in an accidental explosion, and Maurice was named stadtholder of those three provinces as well, bringing his total to five. The young general had a bunch of titles, but little in the way of military victories and was probably seen as mostly a figurehead, at least by the state's general. Johan van Oldenbarnevelt, an early Dutch rebel and an ally of William, born near Utrecht, was the chairman of the states of Holland. With Holland exercising by far the most influence over the state's general, Oldenbarnevelt essentially ran the government. Oldenbarnevelt had been against the consolidation of power by the Earl of Leicester, and help steer the Dutch on a more republican rather than monarchical direction. Maurice was closely aligned with him, at least at this time, so there was no conflict between the two. Perhaps Maurice's study of ancient warfare gave him the idea, but he had a plan to take the city of Breda, the house of Nassau's hereditary baronage in the Netherlands that William the Silent had inherited from his cousin. The city used peat from the surrounding bogs as fuel, and a boatman told Maurice that he made the trip so often he was never really searched. In early March 1590, they loaded up the boat with almost 70 volunteers, although thanks to ice clogging the river, after it launched it sat for a few days before finally entering the city. Hopefully they brought snacks. The barge hit something and sprang a leak, but pumping kept the water at a low enough level to make the Dutch soldiers hidden under the peat incredibly wet, cold, and uncomfortable, but not high enough to drown them. They got into the city, and the guards at the dock came aboard to ensure it was safe. Laborers began to unload the peat, and they were getting dangerously close to exposing the men hidden underneath. The boatmen, though, were able to convince them that it was getting a little late, and here are a few florins, go buy a beer, we'll finish this up tomorrow. The men soon sprang out of their bog-peak Trojan horseboat and attacked the city from within, as Maurice showed up outside the gates with about 1,600 men. A panic among the veteran Italian troops within Breda made it easy for the gate to be smashed open, and the city was taken with little loss of life. Forty defenders were killed, one attacker drowned, and Breda was in the hands of the United Provinces. Only a few weeks later... The Spanish forces in the Low Countries were dealt another blow. Philip of Egmont, Lamoral Egmont's eldest son, who was once a rebel alongside his father's friend William the Silent, but was now somehow a Philip loyalist, led a cavalry group of Walloon and Flemish nobles into France. They were going to fight alongside the Catholic League forces in the Civil War against Henry of Navarre, now Henry IV of France. The younger Egmont was killed in the Battle of Ivry, as were a few hundred leading cavalry soldiers from Flanders and Hainault. Henry then was able to focus on his siege of Paris, trying to take the capital and end the uprising against him. After a long siege and a few months of starvation, Paris was relieved by Alexander Farnese, who linked up with the Catholic League forces. He had wanted to stay in the Netherlands to deal with the war there, but Philip insisted on involvement in France. Alexander showed off his brilliance as a general by relieving Paris almost without a fight. He brought his army out in preparation for a great battle, which was what Henry wanted. But Alexander had also sent forces to seize a nearby fortress, which put Henry in an untenable position. Henry did make one more attempt at storming Paris, but after that failed, he retreated, and the siege was lifted. Alexander stuck around to take a few more forts, but soon returned to the Netherlands before the winter really set in. The Duke of Parma was successful in Paris because he was a great general, but also because he was given money by Philip, as the King of Spain dreamed of a France that was beholden to him. Upon returning to the Low Countries, Alexander found himself again short on funds he pulled out parts of garrisons from cities because there was so little money provided to him by Philip that he wanted to lower the number of mouths to feed there. Two of these cities were Zutphen and Deventer, which the Dutch had fought so hard to take, and a couple of English traders had given back for a few florins. In May of 1591, Maurice sent a small group of soldiers dressed as peasants to the fort outside of Zutphen. They pretended to be selling eggs and cheese, and when some of the guard came down to buy the goods, the peasants pulled out guns and shot them. A larger force was hiding not far away and rushed the gate, taking it without losing a man. With the recapture of the fort, Maurice was able to besiege the city, which capitulated after a week. Maurice immediately marched seven miles along the river to Deventer. This large, fortified Hanseatic city was much more well defended and probably couldn't be taken by some soldiers posing as egg merchants. The defense was led by Herman Vandenberg, the son of one of the leaders of the Compromise, that rowdy group of lower nobles known as the Beggars. Vandenberg was Maurice's cousin, and it's a good reminder that not all of the Dutch nobility was on the side of the provinces. Fighting alongside Maurice and leading the English forces was Francis Veer. Veer was an English soldier, Knighted after his actions at Bergen op Zoom, who insisted on fighting with Maurice at these two cities in particular to make up for the shame of England's responsibility in their loss. Maurice was worried that Alexander would send a force to relieve the city, and he wanted to make quick work of the siege. He was prepared to withdraw his ten thousand soldiers before a Spanish relief army came. Fierce action took place on June 9th, about a week after the city was first invested. The English were allowed the vanguard of the assault, but the defenders beat them back with about 200 Allied English and Dutch killed. The Spanish then rushed out to try to take the bridge that the Dutch were using for the attack, but they were repulsed. Vandenberg was injured, and the next day, without their enthusiastic commander, the city capitulated. Like Zutphen, there was no pillaging, plundering, or ransom. Deventer just rejoined the provinces. Caveats of Alexander's inability to provide enough soldiers for a true defense aside, Maurice had taken two important cities in under three weeks. Maurice took more cities in Gelderland that summer, and in mid-July he had begun to besiege Steenwick. But the Duke of Parma knew that most of the northeast would fall, as lightly defended as it was, without some relief. He marched an army up to besiege the newly constructed fort at Nodzenberg in Gelderland. On July 15th, Maurice heard that news and immediately gave up the siege at Steenwick, marching out to relieve Nodzenberg. On July 22nd, Alexander assaulted the fortress, but this attack was repulsed. On the 24th, Maurice arrived on the scene, but quicker than Farnes had expected, thanks to the Dutch commander's penchant for engineering, bridge building, and the like. Maurice sent a small group of cavalry for reconnaissance they encountered a large Spanish cavalry force and retreated in what appeared to be a full panic until Francis Vere's thousand musketeers jumped out of hiding and attacked the Spanish cavalry, killing or taking prisoner over 200 of them. Realizing he was now in a positional disadvantage, Alexander skillfully crossed the Wall River, a major branch of the Rhine, giving up the siege. He fell back to nearby Nijmegen, perhaps the oldest city in the whole of the Low Countries, although he didn't stick around long to defend it. But Maurice didn't take Nijmegen. Maurice had proven he could lead an army, but most of his victories had been thanks to a few lucky breaks, some surprises, and a solid understanding of siege warfare. To some, the young general hadn't proved much yet, and when given the chance to besiege a big target, he now appeared to be backing off. He and his army, ready to retake Nijmegen and other cities in the eastern regions, instead had just seemed to disappear. What happened to them? Did they disperse for winter quarters? Was Maurice too tentative to finish the job he had started? Bracing for an attack on Nijmegen, without Alexander Farnes, who was ill and hadn't stuck around, the Spanish were relieved when he didn't appear at their doorstep. They assumed he had gone to winter quarters after his victories. But Maurice had some showing off to do. It was time for him to demonstrate his logistical abilities as a general. Before the Spanish knew what was going on, Maurice had crossed the whole country and was suddenly in the west, besieging Hulst. He was there a relatively short amount of time, again showcasing his incredible ability to quickly move a large army, baggage, artillery, and all, across unforgiving terrain filled with rivers, dikes, and bogs. Hulst was on the border of Zeeland and Brabant, not far from Antwerp. And wasn't fully garrisoned, because Maurice's army was supposed to be on the other side of the country. Very little resistance was made, as there weren't enough defenders, and the Dutch took the city after a few days' siege at the end of September. The nearby fortified city of Gertrudenburg in northern Brabant was the obvious next target for Maurice, and the Spanish were expecting it. What they weren't expecting was for the Dutch army instead back in the east in front of Nijmegen after a little more than two weeks. He had once again crisscrossed the countryside and quickly set up siege and demanded surrender on October 20th. He was rebuffed, so he let his cannons fire a few hundred rounds into the city, which surrendered on October 21st. At this point, Maurice finally did end his year of military campaigning for the winter. From John Lothrop Motley, Maurice had surprised everyone, quote, "...by the unexampled rapidity of his movements." and the concentration of his attacks. He had carried great wagon trains and whole parks of siege artillery, over roads and swamps which had been deemed impassable even for infantry. He had traversed the length and breadth of the Republic in a single campaign, taken two great cities in Overisil, picked up cities and fortresses in the province of Groningen, and threatened its capital, Menace Steenwick, relieved Nodzenberg, though besieged in person by the greatest commander of the age beaten the most famous cavalry of Spain and Italy under the eyes of their chieftain, swooped as it were through the air upon Brabant, and carried off an important city almost in the sight of Antwerp, and sped back again in the freezing weather of early autumn, with his splendidly served and invincible artillery, to the imperial city of Nijmegen." 1591 could be described as nothing but a great success for the Dutch Republic, and for young Maurice in particular. That winter, the Duke of Parma left the Netherlands again to go help out the French Catholic rebels. This time, he helped lift the siege of Rouen and spent at least the first half of 1592 there. By this point, he was ill, only in his late 40s, but worn down. He didn't want to go back into France. He wanted to stay to fight Maurice, but Philip commanded it, so he went. Maurice took advantage of the governor-general's absence. In May, he led 8,000 back to Steenwick to complete the siege. It was a heavily fortified and well-garrisoned city, but Parma wasn't coming to bail it out. The city was taken in early July, but in the fight, Maurice was shot through the cheek. He didn't stop other than to bandage it up, and he ended up all right, but it was a very close call. At the end of July, Maurice marched to Covarden, a northeastern city on the way to Friesland and Groningen. According to Motley, the Italian general commanding Alexander's forces communicated to the Duke of Parma that, quote, the city was more valuable than all the towns taken the year before. All Friesland hung upon it, and it would be impossible to save Groningen should Covarden fall, unquote. But fall it did, despite that Italian commander's arrival with 5,000 troops. By the end of 1592, Alexander Farnese had fallen gravely ill, and in December he died. Not yet fifty years old, he certainly was one of the best generals of his age. He succeeded in taking much of the Netherlands back after the losses from unification of the Dutch following the Spanish Fury and the mutinies, and he did so without subjecting it to the total slaughter that his predecessors had. If given the proper funds and attention by Philip, Farnese might have taken the whole dang country back. Instead he spent his last years helplessly trying to hold back a resurgent Dutch republic, while forced to help with the king's schemes in England and France. He was succeeded, temporarily, as governor-general of the Spanish Netherlands by Peter Ernst von Mansfeld, a 70-year-old loyalist, originally from Saxony, but a long-time nobleman in the Low Countries, who had fought at Tunis alongside the Duke of Alba 50 years prior. At the dawn of 1593, most of the northern provinces were in the hands of the Dutch Republic, but a few holdouts remained. Gertrudenburg in northern Brabant, which the Spanish strongly fortified thinking that Maurice would head for it the year prior, was next on the target list for the Dutch. Sitting on the Meuse River, near where it spills out into the delta that feeds the North Sea, it was an important maritime city. Maurice arrived there in March and delivered a masterclass on the art of siegecraft. First, the Dutch formed a massive outer defense to protect themselves from attack by a relief force. They built their own fortress around the one they were attacking. As 5,000 of Philip's soldiers came to relieve the city, Maurice remained behind his palisades, unwilling to engage. Von Mansfeld knew better than to engage the heavily fortified Dutch army that doubled his in size. As too many of his troops were off in France, and so he was forced to withdraw. But the city lay on the Meuse, so Maurice also needed a naval blockade. He had a semicircle of ships surround Gertrudenburg's port. Chained together, this mass of ships was impregnable to smugglers, and they were also able to cannonade the city. Unable to withstand the constant attacks, by late June the city had capitulated before von Mansfeld could return with a bigger relief force. William Lewis compared it to the Battle of Alesia, in which Julius Caesar surrounded a city in Gaul with a double palisade and eventually was able to make the great Vercingetorix surrender. It wasn't just siegecraft that made Maurice's army so formidable. Maurice really was a scientific general. I talked about the logistical brilliance already. Yes, he was a strong commander and was great at moving troops rapidly and safely. But his tactical innovations, implemented with his cousin William Lewis, are what made him so successful. William Lewis wrote Maurice a letter suggesting the use of imperial Roman tactics, such as those described by Aelianus Tacitus, also known as Ilian. Quote, I have discovered a method of getting the musketeers and others with guns not only to practice firing, But to keep doing so in a very effective battle order. Just as soon as the first rank had fired, then, by the drill, they will march to the back. The second rank, either marching forward or standing still, will then fire just like the first. After that, the third and following ranks will do the same. When the last rank has fired, the first will have reloaded. He is basically outlining his rediscovery of counter marching, or moving backwards on purpose and is, in some ways, reintroducing the flexibility of the Roman maniple system. According to Jeffrey Parker, in his Recent Themes in Military History, Maurice and William Lewis studied together at Leiden University under a scholar, Justus Lipsius, who thought that modern infantry, now with firearms, would be the foremost military unit if it operated more like Roman infantry. William Lewis began experimenting with these tactics and made some discoveries of his own, and then Maurice implemented them across the army. So, good job William the Silent in founding that university after capturing Leiden, eh? According to Michael Roberts in the Military Revolution, in opposition to the mostly untrained pikemen and musketeers of the day, quote, the reforms of Maurice inaugurated a real and a lasting revolution in these matters. Maurice's small units had to be highly trained in maneuver, they needed many more officers and NCOs to lead them. The sergeant major of Maurice's army must be capable of executing a great number of intricate parade ground evolutions based on Roman models, besides a number of battle movements of more strictly practical value. Unquote. One of the results of this was that the shape of the infantry changed a bit. In place of massive, deep squares, it became a wider, shallower line, which allowed for more soldiers to fire simultaneously and then move to the back of the line and reload. In conjunction with this, the two cousins realized the importance of firearms as well, and doubled their number per infantry company. Now this may not seem like rocket surgery, but it probably didn't make sense to have so many guns before the formations allowed them to be used so effectively. Maurice and William Lewis drilled the musketeers and invented new maneuvers for all of the soldiers to make. Their soldiers were able to do dozens of movements in sync, on command, to greatly increase their rate of fire. They also developed engineering schools to train military engineers, who had previously just been essentially created ad hoc. The spade was more important than the sword in the Netherlands, and Maurice's troops spent much more time digging entrenchments than battling the enemy. Maurice also reformed his military's pay system to prevent captains who received the pay for their entire regiments from overstating their troop levels and embezzling funds. He executed the first few soldiers who stole as they liberated towns, and banditry among his men disappeared. At the end of the year Covarden, up in Friesland, which the Dutch had recently captured, was briefly besieged by the Spanish, but it was relieved with the onset of winter. It was blockaded, but supplies and reinforcements still made it through. In March of 1594, though, the Spanish returned in full force and demanded surrender. After a month's siege but no surrender, Maurice appeared with nearly 15,000 soldiers to the attackers' 8,000 and entrenched himself along the Spanish lines of communication. Realizing they could not hope to defeat the large Dutch army, the Spanish force broke up and fled in the middle of the night. With that, Maurice marched his army to Groningen. He arrived in late May. Groningen was the largest city in that northeastern region of Friesland and Groningen province. Only Amsterdam and Antwerp held more people in all the Low Countries. It had been over a dozen years since the Count of Renneberg defected and sold off the city, and had given the Spanish a bulwark in the middle of a Protestant-heavy region. Despite being surrounded by the new Dutch Republic, Groningen held out, because it was considered too well fortified to surrender, and that any siege would eventually fail, as there would be enough time for a relief force. Maurice, William Lewis, Francis Vere, and crew began digging in at the end of May 1594, to try to take King Philip's most northerly possession. Siege works and tunneling again went underway, and Maurice again fortified himself to the point that a relief force was unable to do much against him. With desertion playing havoc with their numbers, the Spanish abandoned the relief efforts, and the town went over to the Dutch as soon as the mines reached the first ravelin and explosives were set off. With an outer fortification taken, the city knew it was all over soon, and so they surrendered in mid-July. The Republic of the Seven United Netherlands had now taken back almost everything north of Bruges, Ghent, Antwerp, and Liège. According to Motley, Quote, and thus the Commonwealth of the United Netherlands, through the practical military genius and perseverance of Maurice and Louis William, and the substantial statesmanship of Barnevelt and his colleagues, had at last rounded itself into definite shape. The Republic, placed on the solid foundations of civil liberty, self-government, and reasonable law, was steadily consolidating itself, Unquote. It had basically coalesced into the now-current shape of the Netherlands, while the lands to the south, the remaining Spanish Netherlands, would become Belgium and Luxembourg. Down in the Spanish Netherlands, a new governor-general had arrived to replace the acting leader, von Mansfeld. The new guy, Archduke Ernest, was the brother of the Holy Roman Emperor. He was relatively uninformed on the situation, unaccomplished as a general, and unenthusiastic about the post. Arrogant towards the Spaniards there, and dismissive of the Flemish and Walloons, he was not a popular leader. The Spanish soldiers mutinied, not because of the Archduke, but again because they hadn't been paid in months. It was a massive and well-organized mutiny. This time, they even negotiated with Maurice, asking for his protection from the king. They did some ransacking of the Spanish Netherlands, but nothing like the Spanish Fury from two decades before. The Dutch Republic remained pretty safe. Extremely overweight and crippled with gout, Archduke Ernest died in February of 1595. His tenure as governor lasted less than a year, and other than the mutiny, was almost completely uneventful. The mutiny outlasted him. Pedro Henriquez de Acevedo, the Count of Fuentes, succeeded Ernest as governor of the Spanish Netherlands. He had been in and out of the Low Countries since 1591 and had positioned himself to take the title from the Archduke on his deathbed. Fuentes was already 64, and had a long career in military government service. Nearly 25 years after maybe the most hated man in the history of the Netherlands, the originator of the Blood Council, and the murderer of tens of thousands had left, a protege of the Duke of Alba was in charge again. Fuentes had trained under Alba in Italy, and later served him in Portugal before taking supreme command of Spanish forces there himself. But Fuentes was campaigning in France in 1595, when Maurice went to take the few remaining towns in the northeast. 92-year-old Cristobal Mondragon, who had taken Zirixy where the Spanish mutiny had broken out 20 years earlier, was the governor of Antwerp and set out to stop him. There weren't any major actions, but in a skirmish, an ambush conceived by Maurice was snuffed out by Mondragon, and in the end, Philip of Nassau, Maurice's cousin, son of William the Silent's brother John, was killed. He was a well regarded, if hard drinking, cavalry commander, and the fourth member of the House of Nassau to die for the cause of Dutch independence. Mondragon and his army's presence prevented Maurice from taking other towns that year. That year, something else monumental to the prosperity of the Dutch Republic happened, which also helped usher in their golden age. A book was published. See, until then, the Dutch sea merchants acted as sort of middlemen, bringing goods to northern Europe, as far as Scandinavia and the Baltics, from Spain and Portugal. Amazingly, the trade never had been banned because it was too lucrative to each side. But, in 1595 a man named John Huygen van Linschoten released a book detailing his time working for the Portuguese. Along with an overview of Asia and information about trade there, he published top-secret navigational charts. It allowed the Dutch to break the trade monopoly that the Portuguese and Spanish had among Europeans in Asia, and the Dutch immediately began to take advantage. Back in the Low Countries, Governor Fuentes was as cruel as his sensei, the Duke of Alba, but by now, even Philip knew that this was counterproductive. The cruelty was acted out on the war to the south of the Spanish Netherlands with France, rather than to the north with the Dutch Republic. Nevertheless, in January of 1596, Fuentes was shipped off to govern Milan, and yet another new governor-general arrived, who was yet another brother of a Holy Roman Emperor. Thirty-six-year-old Archduke Cardinal Albert would last longer than his predecessors, and, shockingly, he actually brought some troops and money with him. Albert left the service of the church to take the role and, presumably, marry Philip's daughter. Also arriving in the Spanish Netherlands was the Prince of Orange. Philip William, the eldest son of William the Silent, had been held in captivity in Spain for nearly thirty years, and was a full loyalist to the Spanish regime. Call it brainwashing or whatever, while he revered his father and would suffer no slights on William's name, he held none of his father's beliefs. The state's general made it clear that, while they held him and his family in reverence, he was not getting his Dutch lands back, and he wasn't welcome without a passport. In other words, you can come here under the protection of diplomatic negotiations. otherwise don't come here. He took up residence in the Spanish Netherlands, where he would remain the rest of his life. 1596 did not involve another larger campaign to retake cities, but there was an Anglo-Dutch expedition which raided Cadiz, a port city which sits just northwest of Gibraltar. It was a success. They sacked the city, burned much of it to the ground, and crippled as much of a third of King Philip's fleet. The year had mixed results, though the French city of Calais on the coast was lost to the Spanish as Maurice was organizing a relief force. And Archduke Albert besieged the city of Holst, which surrendered in late summer. As winter came on and Albert didn't disband his forces, just what he was going to do with such a large army camped in central Brabant, so close to Dutch land, became the question on everyone's mind. Maurice decided it wasn't worth waiting to find out. And in January of 1597, he quietly assembled a large force of his own in Gertrudenburg, meeting up with Francis Vere and the English forces. They marched over 20 miles in one day in cold January rain. The route was soaked and muddy, but they appeared within artillery range of the Spanish troops near the town of Turnout. The Spanish troops did not attack that evening, probably fortunate for Maurice and his weary and wet army. They woke up on January 24th, having slept as well as one can after a 20-mile march, but knowing that the next day will likely bring a battle, to find the Spanish troops gone. Albert and company had made their way through a narrow pass in between waterlogged ponds, and Maurice was determined to engage, so he followed through the pass as well. It smelled like an ambush. The Dutch were worried it was an ambush, but it wasn't an ambush. Waiting for the Dutch to come out on the other side of the pass, the Spanish could have been in perfect position to destroy the pursuing army, but they were just trying to get the heck out of there. The Spanish were doing this with great difficulty, though, because after that narrow pass, the territory opened wide, but it was surrounded by brushes and hedges, before it ended in yet another narrow pass. Although his infantry was still making their way into the field, Maurice acted quickly and sent a large piece of his cavalry commanded by Count Hohenloh, around the side of the Spanish army, but just out of sight. The Dutch horsemen outflanked the Spanish and positioned themselves in front of Narrow Pass number 2. We again turned to Motley. Quote, the next instant the trumpets sounded a charge, and Hohenloh fell upon the foremost regiment, while the rearguard, the musketeers, fell back in confusion upon the thickly clustered pikemen. The assailants, every one of them in complete armor on powerful horses and armed not with lances but with carbines, trampled over the panic-struck and struggling masses of leather jerkin pikemen and shot them at arms' length. The Germans in the front and the Neapolitans in the rear had been simultaneously shattered and rolled together upon the two other regiments which were placed between them. Nor did these troops offer any better resistance, but were paralyzed and hurled out of existence like the rest. In less than an hour, the Spanish army was demolished. It was hardly more than daylight on that dull January morning. Nine o'clock had scarce chimed from the old brick steeples of turnout, yet 2,000 Spaniards had fallen before the blows of 800 Netherlanders, and there were 500 prisoners beside. Of Maurice's army, not more than nine or ten were slain, unquote. After this battle, with much of the Spanish forces in disarray, Maurice turned east. His campaign there was flawless, and he captured over a dozen cities and forts in and around Gelderland, including Grenlo and Lingen. Maurice hoped to follow up this by going back to the west the next year with an attack on Flanders, combining with the forces of Henry IV. But the great city of Amiens had been taken by the Spanish, and Henry had to spend most of the year besieging it. And eventually taking it back. Maurice still wanted Henry of France to help him retake Flanders, but Henry was hoping to make peace with Spain. The Dutch Republic knew peace treaties were in negotiation, but they did their best to keep their friends in England and France at war with Spain. Their fear was that if there was a peace, it would just give Philip time to fill the Spanish Netherlands with troops and launch attacks in Gelderland, Frisia, northern Brabant, and eventually Zealand and Holland. But events outside of the Netherlands overtook the area. The Catholic League had been crushed in France, and Philip was old and ill, and genuinely desirous of peace with Henry. Henry was happy to sign the Treaty of Vervain in May of 1598, which finally gave him Spanish recognition. Around the same time, Henry was able to issue the Edict of Nantes, promising religious toleration and rights to Huguenots under the now-Catholic king. Philip, too, was busy issuing orders. He announced that former Cardinal Archduke Albert would be marrying his daughter, Isabella Clara Eugenia, and he quickly transferred sovereignty of the Spanish Netherlands to the two of them. Albert became the Duke of Brabant and Luxembourg, the Count of Flanders and Haino, etc., etc. The Dutch Republic was actually asked to accept the authority of their new leader, a request which was so audacious, it might have even seemed humorous to them. In July, Philip II of Spain, 71 years old and weak, became extremely ill. He lasted a few more months, but on the 13th of September, 1598, the king of Spain for 43 years, and the tormentor of the Dutch Republic for most of that time, finally died. The Spanish Habsburg king Philip II was the big baddie for the Dutch. He threw away any possibility of peaceful relations with his most prosperous region rather than allow any deviation from the Catholic faith or allow the local nobles any bit of authority. He relished the murder of tens of thousands and pretended to support the Dutch nobility while literally signing their death warrants at the same time. He was duplicitous to them, but he was also comfortable writing lies to Cardinal Granville, the Duke of Alba, And his half brother Don John. It is worth noting that for all his faults and all his poor handling of the Low Countries, he isn't universally considered a terrible ruler for Spain. He led Spain during the height of what was certainly its golden age. Some of this was in spite of himself. If he could have been a little more willing to bend, a little less obstinate, he might have kept all of the Netherlands. The Spanish Armada was a disaster. His policy in the Low Countries were a disaster. He bankrupted the treasury more than once, and he set Spain up for a fall. But he also was handed the most powerful empire in the world, and he kept it that way. Spain didn't really start to decline until a generation or two after Philip's death. He was an absolute monarch who at one time defeated the French soundly, and his involvement in their civil wars probably kept his enemy France in chaos for several decades. He united the Iberian Peninsula by taking Portugal and expanded Spain's New World dominions. In the context of the Netherlands, though, he was an obstinate conniver whose inability to understand the people he ruled, let alone have any desire to compromise with them, led directly to their independence. He was succeeded by his son, Philip III, at least in theory. In practice, at least according to some historians, his pal the Duke of Lerma was the real power behind the throne. What is certain is that there was a decline in central authority, although some was to be expected after Philip II, and the different regions of the empire were ruled more independently. Not by people from those places, of course, but by Spanish or closely allied proconsuls. Consequently, in the Netherlands, the Archdukes, the collective name given to Albert and Isabella at the time, ruled the Spanish Netherlands as their own. In the Low Countries, a year or so of mostly defensive warfare had led the states general and Olden Barneveld to the decision that a bold stroke was necessary to restart the engine of revolution. Their aim was to take the city of Newport, a major port in Flanders in the Spanish Netherlands, before marching down to Dunkirk, which was a haven for piracy at that point. With the Archduke still busy dealing with mutinous soldiers, it was figured that leaving a relatively small defense force behind would allow for this campaign, and the people in the Spanish Netherlands might be induced to rise up against the Spanish and join the revolt. But Maurice, as well as his cousin William Lewis, and the English commander Veer, were all fiercely against the campaign. They realized it would be a disaster for the Republic, if they marched the large army needed for the endeavor and were defeated. And even if they won, it would be hard to defend the East at all. Holding on to the territory after a victory would be difficult. It was the first real disagreement between Maurice and Olden Oldenbarnevelt that we know of, but the leader of the state's general prevailed, because Maurice deferred to the authority of the Republican government. Odd thing, this Dutch Republic, where it appears civilian politicians held sway over nobility and the military. I wonder if this would catch on. In June of 1600, Maurice gathered an army of around 12,000 infantry and 2,000 cavalry and crossed the Scheldt. They marched past Bruges. I imagine them peeking over the walls of the city, hoping to spot the people begging to join the United Provinces. But nobody did. Maybe they were waiting for a military victory first. As Maurice approached the coast, his army took a few lightly garrisoned forts that would be needed to cover their supply lines without significant resistance. Arriving in Newport in early July after two weeks of marching, he began the preparations to take the city in a siege. Archduke Albert, meanwhile, was able to convince most of the mutineers to go out and fight with promise of payments after the battle. As more Spanish soldiers gathered, more came perhaps to make sure they weren't going to miss out on payments whenever they did occur. Outside of Ghent, at the end of July, Albert and Isabella addressed their army of nearly 10,000 and marched them off to fight these Netherland troops who were invading the Netherlands. His forces surprised the few troops that Maurice had left behind to cover their supply lines. Albert took the fortresses surrounding Ostend, a city on the Flemish coast that Maurice had just captured, which now housed members of the state's general in observation of the impending siege. But the Spanish, in pursuit of the main Dutch force, left Ostend for the moment. Maurice hadn't had time to fully invest the city of Newport before the Spanish arrived. Albert's presence with a huge army of soldiers who were supposed to be unavailable due to mutiny was a true surprise. Maurice quickly surmised the siege was over before it began, his supply lines were cut, not to mention his avenue of retreat. He was going to have a battle with an army which wasn't supposed to exist. If the Dutch lost, most of the East would be easy pickings. Only a small force was left behind to defend it. Next episode, we see what happens at the Battle of Newport and follow the Dutch Republic through the next decade of fighting before a truce is finally signed with the Spanish, which runs its course before the war resumes with the beginning of the Thirty Years' War, which happens to be the last 30 years of the Dutch Revolt and the Eighty Years' War. Thanks for listening.